0: It doesn't matter what you think about the encounter, it's what the patient thinks about the encounter. Emergency department is not the
1: back door, it's the front door to the place. You never get a second chance to make a first impression.
2: All humans are turned into only one radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? You should do some magic. Two hours and 30 minutes to see a doctor as famous as me, that's not bad.
0: Well, welcome again to Risk Management Monthly. I'm here with Rick Bucata. Hey. And Greg Henry. Nice to see you again, Mel. Hey, let's get straight into this month's CD, and let's talk about what's in the news. And Greg wanted to tell us a little bit about what's happening with malpractice reform. I thought that the upcoming presidential election, there might be some debate about tort reform. He tells me that this is more a state issue than a federal issue, and there's something interesting happening in one of the states in this regard. Mel, I think it would be naive
2: of us to believe that in a federal election in which there's so many other issues, that medical mail would rise to the top. It's not going to rise to the top until it affects access of patients to the care, and it hasn't come to that level yet. I think that from a federal perspective, this is not going to be a big issue. But at the state level, it's tremendously important, and all of our listeners should understand that they have a role to play through their state ASEP chapter or whatever they're a member of, in getting proper reform done. And in the past year, this is what's in the news. The state of Georgia has sort of led the way in tort reform. They now have a bill which passed, which is now part of the Georgia law that says for emergent cases, those that come to emergency department for which you have no previous doctor-patient relationship, not only is the emergency physician going to be held at a different level of liability, but so are all the other specialists who were involved. Now, I'm not naive enough to believe that it was just the emergency physicians that got this passed. This was the effort of people like orthopedic surgery, general surgery, cardiology, who basically told the legislature, unless there's some protection, we're not coming in. And at some point in time, that kind of pressure forced them to pass this new legislation. And what it does is change something called the standard of the negligence. You and I are aware of what we call general negligence or professional negligence, which is a very standard business type of arrangement. What they did was drop emergent cases to a level of willful and wanton malpractice. That's a gross negligence standard. That means they have to show that there was almost a flagrant disregard, not a mistake, but a flagrant disregard for the patient or their problems. This really is a totally new level. Now, no one knows what this is going to mean until we have Georgia Supreme Court challenges and cases to see if it's still going to be held constitutional for that particular state. Most of the people in insurance that I've spoken to say that if this holds under scrutiny, if the courts back this level up, what you're looking at is perhaps a cutting in half of the rates for malpractice in emergency medicine in the state of Georgia. What you've got to remember is that currently in emergency medicine as a business, in any group, whether it be big or small, the second largest expense... The expense after paying the doctors is malpractice. Running the office, paying for memberships and organizations, all that kind of stuff pale compared to the malpractice bill, which in some places has become huge. If you're actually looking today at the rate that should be charged per patient in Dade County, Florida, actuarials are telling us that we need to put aside $28.50 per patient visit just to cover the medical legal activity. Now, if you're in the state of South Dakota, that same number is about $1.60. And I think that the reason that that is so high in Dade County, Florida, is simply because the amount of legal activity
1: is so huge. Well, I certainly wouldn't have guessed the numbers would have been that high in Los Angeles and in California, Malpractice is probably our third biggest expense. Our first biggest expense after salaries is actually the cost of billing, which is generally $10. bucks. we are paying in the neighborhood of 6 or $7 per patient, so we're nowhere near some of the bad places in terms of malpractice risk. Well,
2: California is only mid-zone, Rick. If you actually look at what's happened, California ASEP in years past got some things passed which were excellent. One of those is you have to be an emergency physician to speak against an emergency physician. That changed the landscape here in the state, and it helped the situation. California is not, despite what the thoughts may be around the country, is really not a hotbed for malpractice. It's much more located now in places like Florida, certainly certain counties in the states of Michigan, Wayne County, Cook County, Illinois, places like that where the rates are considerably higher. Some states are coming on big. Texas is going to be big in everything. And its malpractice rates have shown that. Same way with Nevada. Nevada has shown a dramatic increase in the rates. But if we're talking to our listeners about what they can do to try and change the current environment, it's working through their local chapters to put forward legislation in each state to change the level at which we go after emergency medicine malpractice from a standard negligence basis To a willful and wanton or a gross negligence basis. It
1: looks like there's two approaches. One of them is to get this new level of negligence declared, which sounds like it would be fairly difficult to do, but it is limited to emergency medicine. And then what we did in California, maybe 15 years ago, where we limited pain and suffering to 250,000, which is periodically attacked by the trial lawyers, but has not been able to be changed for a really long period of time. Well, it's
2: it's unique in each state. Every state has got its own set of rules. They've got their own rules for evidence. They've got their own rules. Are there caps on pain and suffering? All of these things vary, and there is no one-size-fits-all solution for emergency medicine malpractice in this country.
1: You know, one of the things you brought up was Georgia. Have they, and you mentioned it was limited to emergency cases. well, Cases which take place on
2: emergent situations through the emergency room, but not limited to emergency doctors. Because as you're well aware, in most true emergencies, we have to call in other physicians. The people who really spearheaded this were people like the orthopedic surgeons who don't want to come in to take a case for which they may get paid no money and yet have huge liability.
1: Well, the reason I brought that up is because I think most people would acknowledge that very, very many cases in the emergency department are really not emergencies. So is this going to rest on, well, was this emergency? This was not emergency. This was a bronchitis. Therefore, this statute does not apply. Well, I'm sure that some of those arguments will be held.
2: But on major cases, which truly had an emergent aspect, well, we're going to find out whether this holds if when cases go to the Georgia Supreme Court. Everybody be watching, certainly in the insurance industry, to see what this actually does to dollars lost in emergent cases.
0: You know, Greg, one of the things that has come up, we've been doing this series for a while now, we've talked a lot about what you do after you've been sued and the process and lawyers and all this stuff, but we should talk about prophylaxis. We should talk about the public health aspects of litigation. So are there things that I can do while I'm seeing the patient that will reduce my chance that this person is going to want to go forward with a malpractice suit. Well, Mel, I think that
2: it's like everything else in life. It's not what you think about the situation. It's what the patient thinks about the situation. And you might as well put yourself in the best possible position every minute to have two things happen. The patient like you and the patient have respect for the care and the institution is giving out to them. At that moment in time and I don't care whether you think it's fair or unfair we are judged to a very great degree by how we look people who look like doctors are perceived to be doctors every one of you know that you could walk into any hospital in this country wearing a generic white coat some sort of badge hanging off of you if you had a shirt and tie on clean and neat You could probably get access to any place in that hospital and no one would challenge it because you look like you belong. Looking like you belong and that you're there to do business sends the right set of messages to the patient. And remember in emergency medicine, we have about 15 seconds to make a relationship with a patient who doesn't know us. If you're the family doctor who's taken care of the family for the last 20 years and he comes into the office wearing his casual clothes and just in off the farm to see you, you probably forgive him a lot of things. We don't have that relationship. We've got to establish a professional relationship with people almost immediately. The other thing is we often have to pass on very difficult and traumatic information to people in a very short period of time. As I always tell my lawyer friends, you actually never have a bad day like I do. Have you ever gone in to tell a family that your newborn who had a respiratory arrest at home is dead? Have you ever had to tell a family that their 18-year-old was killed in a car accident? When you think about those kinds of situations, everything we can do to look as professional and as there to do business
0: as possible is the way to go. Is there more than just how you look as there are other things. I know I trained at UCLA and Marshall Morgan here on the West Coast is a famous director of the UCLA department. And one of the other things, he really wanted us to look like doctors. And it's interesting, actually, I was at my son's school, who's six years old, and I did a little presentation about what I do at work. And there were lots of people in the room telling their kids about what they do at work. And it was amazing. I just had my white coat on and my stethoscope, and I asked the kids, well, what am I? And they said, well, clearly you're a doctor. Why? Well, you have a white coat. And you have a stethoscope. So you must be a doctor. It's like what you're saying. We've learnt what a doctor should look like from the age of four or five or six. And so that doesn't change. But one of the other things that Marshall Morgan was always very picky about was that we not be eating in the patient care areas. And as a resident, we used to think he was being a bit of a hard. (laughs) But what do you think about that? Is that a reasonable thing?
2: He's absolutely right. It's great to have a pizza. It's great to have the food. Of course, I'm not even sure what warm pizza tastes like being an emergency doctor, but I think that there needs to be a place where we go, where we can do that sort of thing, where we can relax. But in front of the patients, you want to show that you're concentrating on their problem, not your problem. You know, for that eight hours that we're on, to a very great degree, we need to take our own personal life situations and problems, no matter what those are, and suppress them a little bit. Because during that period of time that we're on, we need to concentrate on the patient's issues. People who are best at this are the Walt Disney folks. If you go to Disney World, you've never seen Snow White kick back with her feet up having a cigarette. There's a place where snow goes <laughs> that's to trash do that. White. Well, that's, that's trash white. There's a place where snow goes to do that. Those of us who know our well-colored snow, there's a place where snow goes for that kind of rest and relaxation, but it's not in front of any of the customers because it would ruin the magic of the magic kingdom. And so they disappear through little doors that you don't see and they appear at various areas. But they know how to behave when they're on stage and off stage. And I think we should look at it that way in emergency medicine. You have on stage time, which is with the families and with the patients, and you have off stage time when you can relax a little bit. And it's not good to confuse those two things. If you're involved in the resuscitation of a child and someone sticks their head in the door and says, hey, you want to get in on the pizza. It probably has nothing to do with the outcome of that case. That child may be going to die anyway, but you know what? What do you think the parents are going to remember from that experience? It's they were so callous. They were more concerned
1: about their lunch than my child. Well, one of the things I think we need to focus on is establishing credibility rapidly. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. And I think you're 15 seconds is generous. I think that the impression is made is as that physician walks in the door or that provider of health care walks in the door. So I personally think I'm in Marshall's school and I think some of us think that this is maybe a generational kind of thing that people of our age and Marshall's age and obviously Marshall's very old are kind of more stuffy about this and you get a sense that some of the younger physicians They're more into the ponytails. If I want a tattoo, I can have a tattoo kind of thing. And this bolt through my nose is okay because I have a right to express myself. And it's really not about that. It's really about meeting the expectations of your customers. It's very interesting
2: that people who are sort of quasi-medical, and I don't mean this to be insulting, but they go out of their way to look medical. The chiropractors, white coats, nice surroundings, keep it clean, keep it neat. Anything they can do... To put people in a medical mode and thought process is important to them. Why would we as the physicians not utilize that ourselves to help take care of us? I want to go back even before they get into the department. And I want to go back to the Disney model. If you're on I-4 in Florida, some 10 or 15 miles before you reach Disney World, you can turn your radio station to a particular channel and get the reports for that day, where to park, what the length of the wait is, et cetera, et cetera. So they're putting you in the mood before you get there. Let's think about our own emergency departments. Are they inviting on the outside? Is it easy to know where to park? There's nothing worse than the first eight parking spots saying on them, reserve for doctor parking. You know what? The doctors aren't sick. By the way, outside of Disney World, you never see a place that says reserve for Snow White or reserved for Mickey Mouse. They don't do that. They make the customer's parking the most convenient possible. And I think right from the get-go, right from entry, it needs to be well signed, it needs to be inviting, it needs to be kept clean, and there needs to be a clear path for entry into the system. Because anything that stands in the way of smooth movement to get emergent care will be recognized by the patient.
1: You know, I think people acknowledge that one of the most important things when somebody comes into the emergency department is how quickly they see a provider. The door-to-doctor time, I think, is unequivocally the most single most important time in an emergency department. And yet, I believe that in many cases we make very, very bad impressions. You come up to a two-inch thick lucite window because it's clear that we're afraid of you, and therefore we need to protect ourselves from you. You get to talk through a little thing like, i like two tickets to the 8 o'clock show because they don't want anything to do with you. They have the plastic chairs in the waiting room, the vending machines, and yet, in the lobby, they've got the padded chairs, they've got the big donor wall, the volunteers are out there to help you, can I help you? There's a big difference between how the front of the building is perceived and how the back is perceived, yet... More people perceive you're a hospital through the back door than they go through the front door.
2: Seven to eight times as many people will actually pass through the emergency department as will be admitted to a hospital. The emergency department is not the back door. It's the front door to the place. In fact, most hospitals today, because of the way you get in, unless we're talking about elective surgery, probably 85 to 90 percent of the admissions come through the emergency department this old thing about going to your doctor's office and him admitting directly into the hospital for sick people is actually relatively rare today. Pretty much those doctors want them channeled through the emergency department for two or three reasons. Number one, they want the diagnosis secured and now we're securing diagnoses. They want the testing going. They want it done faster, better, smarter, and they know pretty much their colleagues in emergency medicine will do that for them. Hospitals that don't recognize that are behind the times. Let me give you an example that if you look at the way people clean buildings, if you talk to Marriott or Hyatt or something like that, they do it on a foot traffic basis. The foot traffic basis means maybe we clean once a day in administration. On that basis, we ought to be cleaning once an hour in the emergency department, putting it back into shape the way it ought to be. You can't help but generalize from sort of the way the place looks to the kind of care you get. There was an interesting study done by the airlines many years ago where they took ketchup and a few other things, condiments, and they smeared little bits of it on the fold-down trays on one half the plane and not the other. Then at the end of that, they surveyed people, and they asked them questions like the safety record of the airline. It's interesting that the people who got the smeared crap on their trays thought that the safety record of the airline was probably worse. As if the same people who clean the trays are the same people who calibrate the avionics.
1: That's true. Now it is. It probably
2: (laughs) is. Yes, But the two really have nothing to do with each other. But the way we work, we generalize. And that sort of generalization, you might as well have those things going in your favor as opposed to going against you. This is one of those deals that if they like you and they think you tried hard, they don't have to include you in a lawsuit. And I think most of our colleagues don't understand that, that the patient actually has the right, through their attorney, to name which physicians are going to be involved. When I review cases, and all of us who review a lot of cases have seen this time and again, there will be a doctor, often a primary care physician, who is actually principally responsible for the problem, who's never named. Why? Because they liked him. You know, my mother was right, good immigrant woman. My mother was right. It's nice if people like you. And I think that for a long time in medicine, we had an attitude and it comes out of the sometimes our training situations where if people like you too much or you're too good to the patients, well, maybe you're not a really good doctor. I think that's unfair.
1: Well, you know, we started this off about doctor behavior and we started talking about doctor dress and doctor food and those kinds of things. But it's clearly we've expanded it because if in fact your patient has waited in an hour and a half You could be the sweetest doctor in the world, but they're going to come in with a little chip on their shoulder, and you're going to have to work all the more to get that resolved. You are. So you're part of a team. But there are things you can do, even in that situation, to disarm the patient. Well, before you go down that path, because I agree, I know where you're going. Yes. I think that it's important that those of us who manage emergency departments really, really, really make an effort to see what it would be like for us to go through. Not the VIPs, but just the, the regular people, how they come through. Do you value their time? Do you value their privacy? Those kinds of things basically add on to, and the doctors was really concerned and the nurses were very, very helpful. And so it's a totality of the experience. If you're a great doctor working in a bad place, you're still going to to b- a bad problem. It's interesting to watch the attitude, depending on
2: where you work, about getting people moving. I'm one of those type A personalities that I don't want to see charts on the right. Ra- I want to see people in the rooms so I can start moving from room to room to room. The way you keep the place moving is get in and do with the business when it's slow so it never backs up. So you don't have that problem when things get heavy. And we need to look at that. We need to set standards of moving patients from the front to the back. There was a sort of a laid-back, sort of a laissez-faire attitude for a long time that, well, theirs is not a terrible emergency. You know, it's interesting, the patients to whom it doesn't make any difference, the sickest patients actually don't care. The more that they can't sit up or stand up, they don't care about the time. The ones who are concerned about the time are the ones who are more vertical as opposed to horizontal. The more vertical you are the more you're a customer the more horizontal you are the more you're a patient and those people who can't get up can't move are comatose they're not the problem the problem are those patients who are fully ambulatory fully aware and understand the only thing they have of value is their time and they don't want to waste
1: it waiting in your place That's right. And it's not like we're going to give you a smaller bill because we blew an hour and a half of your time because we chose to not staff this place to value your time and to value you as a customer. I've really uh, changed my view of
2: this in the last few years that uh, when I saw those first places saying, you know, seen in uh, 29 minutes by a provider or it's uh, a discount, a gift or something like that, I thought, well, it's sort of a gimmick. But the truth is, they have now put something out there to encourage their staff to move on seeing these patients and getting them going. And anything that moves the patient from arrival to starting the workup process, I think, is a good thing. After all, nobody comes to the hospital because of the quality of the food in your vending machines. Nobody comes because they really wanted to read a 10-year-old magazine, which was laying on the shelf in the waiting room. That's not what they're there for. When you think about it, the term emergency waiting.
1: Military intelligence.
2: Military intelligence. It's an absolute term, two terms, which should not be in the same sentence. It is a paradox. And to the degree to which you can eliminate that paradox, you're probably better off.
1: We have a protocol at our hospital or a service standard at our hospital that says 80% of the patients will be seen within 30 minutes of their clock in time which means, and everybody knows that, and we monitor the physicians in terms of their ability to do that, which means that anything that gets in that way of that 30-minute time is the enemy, whether it be triage when you don't need to triage, whatever it is, the idea is that you need to go in that room and say, Hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I understand that you've got some belly pain. I'm going to come back and see you a little bit later, but I want to get you comfortable and get some stuff started. That is what we're looking for, so that they say, Geez, they saw me right away. And the emergency physicians that have that understanding become the stars. One of the things that I find interesting is this, what you mentioned, this disconnect between your behavior. You want to get the patients in, out. You don't want to see charts in the rack. You want to see them preemptively because you don't want to get behind. And that's being reinforced by this idea about incentive-based compensation, where emergency physicians now instead of getting a flat hourly kind of thing, are the more they can move and make these patients happy and get them in and out and turn the tables in the restaurant, the more they make. And this clashes oftentimes with the mentality of the people who are not on any kind of incentives. And this, you know, this is the fifth shift I've worked this week. It's at 12. I'm doing a time and a half kind of thing. I'm a little tired. We're not all in sync with the idea of what we're trying to accomplish. Right. By the way,
2: no patient wants to hear your problems. If you and I go to a great restaurant in New York, nobody is sitting there saying, God, you know, this is my 12th table. I don't know whether I can carry all this stuff. I can do this. I'm going to do that. You don't care. The only thing you care about is our service at this moment in time. All humans are turned into only one radio station, WIIFM. What's in it for me? (laughs) And if they can't relate to WIIFM, They're not terribly interested that you're working hard that day. As far as they're concerned, you're a well-paid professional, and if you're working extra, you're probably getting time and a half. They want to know how come their problem isn't being taken care of, and we just need to recognize that as the mindset. The other thing is most of the people we see are at one of the stress points of their life. There was a woman that we interviewed on camera for a program done years ago, and she said something very interesting She said, you know, it wasn't the best moment of my life. And that's true. We tend to meet people when they're under tremendous stress. And it's up to us to bring to the table sort of the sense of calm and reassurance. Because those people aren't going to be that way. You can't expect somebody whose child is critically ill, who's just had an accident, who's been sick and vomiting for three days. You can't expect them to be the one who sets the tone, you as the physician have to set the tone for the
0: interactive experience. Well, I would like to keep things concrete. So you've given me one pull there. What I dress in matters. And I've heard you speak about this before, and that's why I'm trying to set this up for you. How, then, or what should be the words that I first start with as I walk in the door? So I walk in the door, and I've got my clean white coat, and I don't have pus and blood all over me. What are the words that I should start this interaction with?
2: Well, when you come in, it's not just the words. I'll give you the words in a moment, but understand that English, despite what people think, is a tonal language. So if you said, well, good, I'm glad you're here, what I've conveyed to you is sarcasm, really. If you said... Well, gee, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming in. It's the tone in that voice. You see it all the time. You hear it in the nurses all the time. I had to deal with a nurse question one time where the nurse was very, very adamant when the patient wrote in and said, the nurse said this or that. And she said, I didn't say that. I said, no, but you meant that. That's what this patient took out of that tone of voice. And sometimes we don't realize when we walk in that room, we have to clear our heads And remember that that person, this is the first time they've come into contact with us. And they've got to, at that moment in time, have their view of us be a positive one. So it's not just the words. And then then I think what you need to do is three things every time. Number one, identify yourself. They want to know who's taking care of them. Say, hello, I'm Dr. Henry. And I also like to say the name of the patient. Because has anyone ever walked into the wrong room? You ever picked up the wrong chart? At least identify who that person is at that moment in time. I'm a big handshaker. I think you ought to touch the patient. Patients respond better if you actually make a physical bond and contact. This is part of the magical laying on of hands. People
1: believe in the magical laying on of hands. I can't stress that enough. Just resting your hand on their forearm, you don't even necessarily have to shake because shaking is kind of formal. And if the person you're interacting with is not really expecting you to shake, it's a 75, 80-year-old grandmother, just the idea that you touch them. I believe that when people are in the emergency department, this level of stress is reflected in a certain dependency that they start acting at. They act and the idea that you are there to help and you're going to be warm and caring, the laying of the hands is so important in terms of making that for 15 nanosecond first impression work. Right. And give them
2: something. Thank them for coming in. You know, business goes where it's invited. It stays where it's appreciated. And it's okay to say something. Well, thank you for coming in today. What can I do to help you out? Or what is the problem today? The other thing which I think is useful 98% of the time is to apologize for any wait.
1: Apologizing the wait. Absolutely.
2: It doesn't cost you any money to say something like, sorry if there was any delay today. And what that does is immediately supplicates you. It lets them know that you would like to have seen them earlier. And I don't care how long they've waited. I had someone one time, I said, I'm sorry if there's any wait. She says, God, I've only been in the room five minutes. I say, we'd like it to be too. They need to know that you value their time, and you're sorry if they didn't get rapid
1: service. I couldn't agree more. You don't need to know that they waited a long time, just like you said, even if it's been a short time. You can, as part of your standard spiel, say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I hope you didn't have to wait very long.
2: Let me give you a scenario and three examples of how this might go. If you're an absolute buffoon and idiot at this business and should be taken out and beaten with a hose – You'll make a mistake like when the patient says, doctor, I've been waiting two hours and 30 minutes to see you. You actually look on the chart and do the mathematics and say, no, it's only been two hours and 10 minutes. (laughs) What you are then is a fool because what the patient is doing is conveying to you a feeling, not an exact time interval. Another thing is, I suppose a response I could have is, uh, well, I've been waiting two hours and 30 minutes. I could say, well, two hours and 30 minutes to see a doctor as famous as me, that's not bad. You know, I don't recommend that either because no patient cares what your status is outside of that room at that time. They don't care if you're a professor of this, whether you've written a thousand papers. They don't care. What they want is care now. The much better approach is, I know and I'm sorry, but I'm here with you now. Let's get down to solving your problem. And well, I'm sorry if there's any delay.
1: One of the things that you often see that is somewhat problematic is, if you say something like, well, what can I do for you? Sometimes they get annoyed because they've told four other people in front of you what their problem was. And so it, it's a good idea for you to actually look at the chart every once in a while to say, I understand that you're having some abdominal pain now. So that it's clear that you're not coming in cold, that you've read what the nurses have written, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Yeah, exactly. By the way, we have gotten into what I call linear medicine. And that is we assume that they show up at a window. Information is taken. They go to a triage nurse. She takes information. The chart then goes someplace else, and then they go to a primary nurse in the back, and then they put up something on the chart for you. You know what I like? I like to go in as the patient is coming in, and let's get all of this done at once. I'll listen while other things are going on. I'll hear what's going on. I can be writing the orders for the lab studies or x-rays, whatever it is, as the nurse is finishing getting that patient undressed. And we can move this thing right along, but we've fallen into a mentality that says if you haven't done these 10 things in order, somehow they haven't had proper care. And I think we're deluded on that. You know, it's interesting to watch in court where they pretend that doing every aspect of every exam the way it's written is done or it's negligence. I had a case probably about two months ago where I had someone from an accident, an auto accident, hit on the head. I heard perseverations of the speech, went down, one toe was up going, and at that time I ordered the CT scan. Did I really have to have them do presidents forwards and backwards? Did I have to see if they could touch their finger to the nose to decide that they needed to get that study? This is linear thinking, which doesn't move us from point A to point B in the most efficient manner.
0: So you dress nicely, you wear a nice coat, you try and get them back to see you as fast as you can, you're not eating popcorn and talking about the football game, you apologize for the wait. you introduce yourself, you lay a hand on, and if you do all of those things, they say, you had me at hello. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, let me tell you one other thing,
2: and that is, don't pick a fight that you don't need. In my young, sort of piss-ass days... I was, I guess, more ready to fight on certain issues. Now what I realize, now that I'm old, is mostly what I need are friends. Don't do something that goes out of the way to inflame a patient. For example, we don't allow people to wear political buttons or statements on their coats. Why would you make a certain group of the country unhappy without a reason for it? And that includes not just candidates, but I mean if it's an anti-abortion button or a pro-abortion button or whatever it is we'd rather have none of that at that moment in time. There's no reason for us to be challenging their core belief structure in front of them. I think that we need the vanilla approach. You tend to look clean and neat and put together and relatively conservative. I had one of the lawyers that we deal with was out here in California one time with his kids. and Of course, when they get back knowing you're an emergency doctor, they have to tell you their emergency medicine story. Everybody wants to tell you about their trip to the emergency room. I said, what was it like? And he said, the doctor had purple hair. And I said, well, California, those are Republicans, okay? (laughs) I said, they've got a governor who says things like, I'll be back. I said, it's different out there than it is in the Midwest. But the truth is that one little feature, which someone felt that they had a perfect right to do, set the patient or the patient's father, in this case, into questioning what the care was. And I think that we don't realize some of the clues, some of the messages we're sending out that people pick up on. And we need to be very careful about that. Don't pick a fight that you don't need to pick at any moment in time.
0: You know, this has been the opinion of two old men, and I'm slightly younger than these guys. And probably there is a generational thing here. And so I have two questions. One is, is, there any literature on this? And I think Rick might have some literature for us. And then the next statement would be, even if it is true that wearing something conservative doesn't matter to some people and dressing non-conservative is not a problem for the younger generation, I think it probably is true that you never get into trouble by looking good. You never get into trouble by being a little bit conservative. But you can get in trouble the other way, so therefore wouldn't you default to the easier position, the the better position? The other thing, Mel, is if you look at our patient population, I'm
2: not taking care of a lot of 25-year-olds these days. The majority of people I take care of, and again, I'm from the Midwest, the conservative Midwest. I'm taking care of a lot of 75 and 80 and 85-year-old people who grew up in a different era, who remember the Second World War, who remember when gentlemen would never go to church without a suit or a coat and tie on. It's interesting to watch the old film, the footage of baseball in the 40s, because everybody to the baseball game wore coats and ties and suits to attend baseball games. You ought to see the film footage of Jackie Robinson's first game in New York and everybody
1: in the stands is dressed to kill. Before we get into the papers, I wanted to make a couple of comments. As the director of a department, I get all of the feedback on the patient evaluations of our department. And it's really discouraging, actually, to see the frequency with which people comment on the conversations that they overhear in the nursing area. We kind of think that When you become a patient, your ears stop working, when in fact we tend to work in these fishbowls. And so the conversation about what you did last night, your dates and what you're having for dinner and your vacation and all of that stuff, which may be part of the regular discourse between coworkers, is viewed as lack of attention to the matters at hand. I'm in pain. My mother's sick. And none of this matters to me.
2: We had an interesting letter sent from a hospital that I'm associated with where one of the nurses married well. And she and her husband not only owned buildings and that sort of thing, but racehorses. She's having a conversation about the buying and selling of Secretariat or something like that on the phone where there's a woman in one of the rooms whose husband is dying. And now I'm sure that her sitting there on the phone sort of giggling and talking about the money they've spent on racehorses, has nothing to do with this woman's husband dying. But you know what? You should have read the letter where she expressed what it was like to be having those last minutes with her husband and listening to this outside the door. It was actually crushing. It was a devastating indictment of the way we behave. And we need to look at that. We need to talk about it honestly and say, what do we want ourselves to be perceived as? Because in the long run, people live and some people die. But how they were managed makes a big difference to the family and to those around who are watching this.
1: Well, the expectation of the patients and their families, I think, is that the discourse that they will hear relates to the care of patients and is not focused on things that are extraneous to that. It's interesting because all of the nurse managers that I've worked with over the years, they all understand it. But it's somehow, it's very difficult to convey this to the many members of the staff. They're offended many times when we talk about your conversation, your joking, those kinds of things. Please don't do that. The patients, look at what the patients are saying about us. And it just goes in one ear and out the other many times. I was working one
2: time sewing up a patient. And two of the nurses, quite innocently, were at the counter behind us, i Patient's laying down, I'm sewing. One nurse says to the other, Did they short you on your overtime this month on your check? The other nurse said, Well, of course they did. They do nothing right at this hospital. And the patient kind of raises his head slightly and looks over at me. And I said, Sir, they're really talking about an administrative question. We're actually quite good in closing wounds. But it does raise the right issue, doesn't it? That loose lips sink ships, that this sort of idle chatter never helps us one bit.
1: But I would think even if you told the staff, staff, what would you think if you heard a conversation like this? They would say, oh, that's really kind of inappropriate. I don't think we ought to do that. It's kind of like they can't put themselves oftentimes in the position of the patient, which is kind of hard to conceive of, but it happens so regularly, and I don't think it's unique to our department, frankly
0: it's a universal. I think what this is more about, sure there are some people when you bring this up will say, well, I don't care. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. There's a vigilance thing here. It's human nature to talk about the things that are interesting. You're at work for 12 hours. You've got to keep your guard up on a lot of these issues for 12 hours at a time and it's easy for it to fall down. You're exhausted. You've seen lots of stuff. So like to spin it another way, it's not to take it in the negative. You're all bad people, but we have to stop being normal people, and we have to put on the show, the Greg Henry show. We're, now we're on the stage. We're going to play the part, and that's hard to do for eight hours unless you're constantly reminded. Remember, the show's still on. We're in the public area here.
2: If the people who work at Disney World can do it, people who are highly trained professionals can do it, and I think it's an attitude question about how you want to be perceived by the outside world at that point in time. I think that humor is also difficult in the emergency department. You have to be very careful with it, know when to use it, who you're using it with. If you have something funny to say, mail it to Mel I and we'll (laughs) laugh our butts off over it. We may even put it here on the show. But the place for it is not on the chart or in front of the patient. Those are the two places where... Most humor doesn't need to go.
1: Although I believe, it certainly doesn't belong in the chart, but I believe humor can really diffuse a lot of their anxiety if you use it properly. You have to be careful.
2: Well,
0: it's got to be done
1: judiciously.
0: Well, right. you're talking about humor directed directly at a patient where you're having a conversation versus you're telling an off-color joke to a nurse while somebody's oh, exactly no, yeah, This it. is
1: about interactions with the patient.
0: Right. And, you know, this thing about the Disney fan thing, it's so true, and so many comedy sketches have done that, how ridiculous it is when Mickey Mouse just punches somebody out in the middle of Disneyland because they've had a bad day at work. That just doesn't happen. And I like the idea that if they can do it, then we can do it. So that sets the bar high.
1: One of the things that you mentioned, Mel, is something that we often take for granted, which I think is actually quite problematic. And you mentioned the hours people work, and they're tired, and they've seen a lot of patients. They don't let people fly jets airliners for 12 hours they will have two crews on an airplane that flies itself to Europe to Europe rather than having these same crew fly for 12 hours yet it is routine and in fact the rule for nurses to work 12 hours and they're only allowed to work 12 hours three shifts at this hospital but then they go to another hospital where they're working another two shifts because they want to pick up some extra money so they're often tired burned out and the Reflection of that often is in bad behavior. I remember some physicians who used to work 12 hour shifts, busy hospital. They said, The best day of my life is when our shifts went down to eight hours in terms of how they perceived their work. The patients were not the enemy anymore. They were able to go home and have some life that day rather than just going to sleep and dreading the next day. And the idea of working. Protracted periods of time, I think, is reflected in our behavior. Yeah, I understand that there's a tremendous feeling about this
2: within the profession. I know that some of the physicians feel that they'd like to work a lot of hours and fewer number of shifts, but in the long run, that may not be the way to go. And certainly as we age, and I mean, Rick, you and I are in our 60s. At this point in our lives, a six-hour shift a half of a shift might be a perfectly reasonable way to go to prolong our careers if that's what we can handle and still be good. And you know what leaves me at the end of eight hours or so is not my intelligence level or my ability to read the EKG. It's my sense of humor. And patients can sense, I believe, whether you want to be in that room doing the work at that moment or are you going through the motions? And as soon as they sense that going through the motion stuff, that's when
1: I think you have trouble. All right, we're going to pick up on a couple papers in one second. Mel, you mentioned there's a litany of about 10 things that you need to do that you went through. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd like to add to that litany in terms of making a good impression is addressing patients' pain right away. They may have no pain whatsoever, but the law of averages said that most of them are in some level of discomfort. And to the extent... That You preempt them by saying, are you having any pain? Can I help you with that at all? Something in that tenor allows you to meet their expectations. They don't have to ask you. You can give it quickly. It means that you're a caring person because you've addressed it. The point is not that you're dealt with the pain.
2: The question is you thought enough to ask whether they had the pain. If a patient asks you for pain medicine and you give it, you have get five points. If you ask them before they asked you, in their mind, you get 25 points because you're concentrating on why they came in. And you know what? Does it ever hurt? There's all these little stories we tell each other in medicine and lies which we have given out to the patients for years. Oh, we can't give you anything for pain. It may mask something.
1: Yeah, it'll match the pain.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe exactly what it's masking. So you've got a 16-year-old boy now who's come in with a slightly S-shaped arm, fell off his bike or something like that. You're going to send him over to x-ray. Why not stick a couple of Vicodin in his mouth before he goes over? Because by the time he gets back and now he's got the films, he's feeling a little bit better from your medication. How in the world are we going to perceive that we've missed something by a little common pain relief? ice bags, elevation. But if you talk about the pain, then you care about them. If they have to ask
1: you, you're insensitive. Okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of papers that deal with this seemingly controversial topic about doctor attire. The first paper is entitled Physicians Attire as Perceived by Young Children and Their Parents, The Myth of the White Coat Syndrome. And the reason I like this paper is because most people will take the position that a kid will freak out if you wear a white coat, you have to wear like a clown suit, something like that to make them feel comfortable, etc., etc. This is in Pediatric Emergency Care by Dr. Matsui in June of 1998. This is an eight-year-old paper, Children's Hospital of Western Ontario. The long and short of it is, and these were kids between the ages of four and eight. So we're not talking about a one-year-old, two-year-old kind of thing. And there's always this issue about whether you can extrapolate. This paper made it very clear that both the parents and the children preferred the doctors in the white coat the professional garb and that it wasn't frightening now there's going to be a lot of people say this is just counterintuitive but if you look at this paper it makes it pretty clear that this is what their expectations are and things like jeans and other kinds of and long hair and earrings on males and open-toed sandals and all those kinds of things were considered to be problematic dress now that's a paper that deals with kids and adults we get another one here that it's entitled Patients and Physicians' Attitudes Regarding the Physician's Professional Appearance. And this was published in the Archives of Internal Medicine. This was an old paper in 87. This is a paper where they had physicians. In this case, they were family physicians, residents and staff physicians, basically. The patients were asked to assess them. They had a picture of the doctors in various garb, but it was the same doctor. So it was the same face, whether it same ethnicity, but just changing their garb. And they said, did the garb matter? The garb that was most appreciated by the patients was the white coat shirt and tie garb rather than scrubs and those kinds of things. Now, not all papers, to be fair, basically have come to these conclusions. Some papers suggest that physician attire is not that important. Here's one of the papers that addresses that. This is from the Journal of Emergency Medicine, July 2005. It's entitled Patients' Attitudes Towards Emergency Physician Attire. This is from Jacoby Medical Center of the Albert Einstein Hospital in the Bronx. And in this setting, Urban ED, patient rating of physician appearance and professionalism and satisfaction with the physician were not influenced by the physician attire. See, well, how do you make a connection between these apparent disparate papers? And I'll have a comment on that in a second. Well, Rick, that's a Jacoby in New York
2: as well. But one of the problems with all our research, and I don't care whether it's research on what doctors look like, on our drugs, on our therapies, whatever it is, whenever you have a basically poor urban population. The question is, can you extrapolate that to middle class and upper class and people who live in Gross Point, Michigan and into ritzy neighborhoods? And can you actually take that kind of information? And those patients may care about that a lot. So I think there are limitations to taking just one hospital in one area and deciding that's the way it works out. Well,
1: doctor, you just stole my thunder because that's the whole point. This is an inner-city hospital, two-thirds Hispanic, one-third African-American. The fact of the matter is is that these people might have waited three, four, five hours to be seen. Inner-city hospital. Twelve hours. Twelve hours 15 to be seen. Hours. So the dress of the doctor is probably the least thing that you're concerned about right now. So I think that the point that you made about the extrapolatableness of this conclusion, this is a comment I made when this paper first came out, that this paper is atypical and you can use it if you choose to defend your position that the doctors can look like they, what they want, but this paper is fundamentally flawed in terms of its extrapolatability to the community at large. Yep.
0: Yeah, I work in an inner-city hospital, and I think what you said is exactly true. It's not that... What you wear is not important to our patients that we see, but there are so many other things. You've had a broken arm and you've had pain for 12 hours. It's just dropped down a little bit. They'll forgive you for what you look like as long as you will quickly get them what they really need, which is an analgesium. You know, when we talk about dress, we often talk about what the guys are wearing. But, you know, in the last six months or so, we've had some difficulties because at one of the hospitals that we run, Some of the very attractive physicians have been wearing very provocative outfits. And that's been just as disturbing to some of our patients than guys coming in with a nose ring. And why they're wearing that, you could argue it's because of the very handsome paramedics that are coming through. But a number of our female patients have said, you know, that's also inappropriate. I don't want to see you wearing the wedding gown when I come to the emergency department. I expect the female nurses to be professionally dressed It's very interesting. When the AMA did all those studies... And they've done a lot of
2: these picture studies and showing people various garbs and that sort of thing. When they decided whether men or women are more sensitive, women were more sensitive to these issues by a factor of 10. That is, women actually notice what you look like. The other thing is they were most critical not of men, but of women physicians. I think actually women sometimes have a higher mountain to climb here. But if you read those comments in the articles that said, oh, you know, her earrings are too long, her hair's done too much, or this, that, and other thing. You've got to get that minimum balance there between, they don't want to see somebody who looks like they're heading to a cocktail party. By the same token, they don't want somebody who looks like they just got back in from backpacking. And you've got to have some sort of professional garb where you hit in the middle because what it is is you don't want any impediment to you being able to deliver your message. And the message is, I'm a professional who's caring for you. Anything that interferes with that message, it interferes with the message.
1: Well, that's interesting because in one of the papers we just did here, physicians in a suit, this is family physicians, in a suit were rated lower than physicians in a white coat. Well, that's because the coat tends to lend credibility. We have associated
2: throughout our lives, watch daytime television. When they have all those doctor shows, I don't know where those doctors actually practice because they seem to have a huge amount of time to have coffee with very attractive young women, but they're always wearing white coats, and they always look very clean and very neat and very pressed. It is the image we grew up with. It's what you expected.
0: Can I spin this a slightly different way? Greg, I'm being sued because I missed subarachnoid hemorrhage and I turn up to the stand in jeans and a muscle shirt with my tattoo that says, I love my mom on it, would you suggest to me that that's probably a bad thing to wear on the stand? Well, if you think the patients are critical, watch the jurors. And
2: by the way, these studies have been done with jurors as well. Incidentally, they don't want the doctor looking too good or too rich. For example, flashy gold jewelry would not be a good idea. The worst mistake I ever saw that way was an OB-GYN doc being sued who showed up in a leisure suit, open shirt, and he was wearing a little gold necklace. And on it, there was a little gold vaginal speculum. If you want to slap somebody around or wave a red flag at a bull, dress like that.
1: That's called Dr. Bling. (laughs) That's Dr.
2: Bling. (laughs) Well, you laugh about this. But we actually deal with trial consultants who look at people before trial and say, how should they be attired? What should we do? We had one woman one time who was absolutely gorgeous, and the trial consultant said, and I don't care how sort of sexist this sounds, she said, she's too good looking. She said, the women on the jury will hate her. More than that, she had a husband. She was married to a plastic surgeon who was very handsome. She said, lose the husband. You know, rent her an ugly husband for the week or something. Take her out and dress her in ordinary clothes. Get rid of that diamond. Do these sorts of things, because the last thing you want is to look too overly successful on that stand. You want to look neat, clean, professional. But if you look like it's a million-dollar outfit, then they might think you have a
0: million bucks to give away.
3: The problem is that the emergency department to us becomes home.
0: That's Marshall Morgan, the Director of Emergency Services at UCLA. As the director, he has to field all the patient complaints. He's been doing this for a very long time. UCLA is located in an upper-middle-class suburb of Los Angeles and serves what may be described as a very exacting patient population.
3: And so we behave there like we might if we were at home with a bunch of our friends or if we were working in a place where we're not in a fishbowl but in the emergency department, you are in a fishbowl. Not only are there health laws that are violated all the time when we eat and drink in patient care areas, and essentially the whole ER and most ERs, except for the employee lounge, is a patient care area. And it goes from eating, which is arguably unsafe. It also is unsightly to have somebody spread out a tray from the cafeteria or a brown bag on the desk four feet from a patient who is intubated and on a vasoactive drip. It just isn't appropriate and everybody but us seems to be able to see that pretty easily. And the same goes for a lot of the stuff that we do, the kind of black humor, the kind of jovial interactions that take place. I think it's appropriate and inevitable that people are going to be friendly and they're going to have some chatter about things that are not directly relevant to what they're doing. But again, in a place where you have family members who are entirely broken up about what's just happened to their loved one, and we're talking about uh, the score of the ball game, it really doesn't strike them as being particularly appropriate. And it's that kind of thing that makes patients think that we don't care. So have we beaten this topic into the ground here?
0: I think we have. I think we probably should take a letter from one of our listeners and see what they want to talk about. Okay, let her rip. So I've got a letter here from one of our listeners, and they've asked a very interesting and very specific question. They work at a private emergency department. There's a lot of patients who are coming in sent in by their private doctors, and he was seeing this patient, and the patient was very sick. In comes the private doctor and says, I'm just going to send this person home now, I'm done, they don't have what you said, emergency physician, this chest pain is non-cardiac and I'm sending them home and I'm the cardiologist. What this physician wants to know is at what point can he give up care to a private doctor, a cardiologist, an ob whoever it is, in the emergency department? Just because they say, I want to send the patient home, is that okay? What's their role there at that point? The story of the private doctor in the emergency
2: department is actually becoming less and less of a problem in the country because less and less of them are showing up. Rick and I are from the era when there was still a little of that when they were coming in. But these days when someone says, my doctor is going to meet me, that's usually one of the great lies in America. Uh, that, that's like the check. Go, don't go through that list. Yeah, yeah, that yeah list. the check is in the mail. You know. don't, <laughs> don't finish but I think that as we look at these kinds of situations, they can take place. If the two doctors do not agree, here is my suggestion. You've got to make sure that the patient got your opinion. If the patient is happy with his doctor taking over, I am transferring care now to your doctor. Are you happy with this? If he knows what your thoughts are, that's fine. But I think the two of you need to go in the back room and talk this thing out. Because if you're viewing the case differently, the patient has a right to your best opinion. Let me give you the case. This is a case that goes back a number of years, but it goes back to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. This is the Bethup case, Johnson slash Bethup. And it had to do with a man who's in an emergency department and the emergency doc looks at the first EKG and says that's an anterior infarct. Calls the private doctor. Private doctor says, well, why don't you transfer them to the hospital across town? They have house staff and I think they get better care. Which translates to, the house staff does the work and I get the charge for it. The emergency doc said, I don't feel comfortable with that. This is an acute anterior. Things could happen. And it's a 40-minute ride. The doctor comes in. He and the emergency doc have words in the back about this. He said, well, it's my patient. So he goes in, talks to the patient, transfers him. And, of course, in the act of transfer, he dies. This is a real simple course. Obviously, something bad had to happen and there wouldn't be a lawsuit. The wife sues the primary attending who came in. No problem with that. But she also includes the emergency physician. And here's the theory under law that was initially thrown out and then went all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The theory under law was I paid you for four things. Number one, history and physical. You did that great, Doc. Thank you very much. Diagnosis. You're an ace. You nailed it. You knew exactly what he had. Initial therapy, not bad. You did what you were supposed to do. And I sued you for your best medical opinion. I had retained you for your best medical judgment. If I had known that you and my primary care doctor had disagreed, I might have made another decision other than to let you transfer
0: my husband. So, Greg, the obvious follow-up to that is simpler, but it has to be stated the private physician on the phone says, Dr. Henry, send this patient home. You think that's a bad idea. And he says, send the patient home. I'm the private doctor.
2: Well, I think that, first of all, we have to challenge the initial premise, and that is that I'm the doctor. I own the patient. That's exactly what doesn't exist. Under the law, patients patients retain doctors. Doctors don't own patients. And that is a key principle of the law. Patients can change their doctor anytime they want. You and I all know patients who change their doctors more often than they change their socks and underwear. And one week it's one doctor and one week it's another. When they're in your department, you are the person who is signing that chart. You bear the responsibility at that moment in time. If you don't agree with what's going on, then you ought to state that to the doctor at this moment. And I never advocate being rude about it. But what you can say is, you know, I'm not sure we're understanding this case. Here are the things I'm afraid of. And again, I've become a master at convincing them to keep patients. I can say, you're right. I'll just watch them throughout the night and call you every hour with the vital signs. Just because the guy on the phone doesn't want the case doesn't mean you have to send them home. You can find them another doctor. You can keep them and watch them. You can do a lot of things. Sometimes you have to ask a little favor and say, Doc, I know we disagree with this a little bit, but trust me on this one. I feel uncomfortable enough that I want to do X or Y. Don't put me in that position. The other thing is, why don't you come in and see the case with me and see what you want to do. And 99% of the time these days, if you say that, you know what they say? Admit them because they don't want to get out of bed, come in and see that case. But no doctor, no emergency doctor should ever believe that by talking to someone on the phone, it relieves them of responsibility. They're the person on site. And you know what all those guys say when something goes wrong? If they'd only told me, if they'd only conveyed how sick that person was, well, I wanted to come in. I was driving by the hospital dressed on my cell phone. (laughs) I would have been in
1: there in a heartbeat. (laughs) On a
2: heartbeat, I'd have been there if the doctor had only done it. You know what? In retrospect, everybody's got this figured out. But the only person who's bearing the liability at that moment, the only one who's got the clear view because they're seeing them, is the emergency doc. There's no question in my mind that most of the cardiologists I speak to know a lot more about what the anterior descending artery looks like in the LOA position on a calf than I do. But they don't know anything more about chest pain and whether it's an actual MI than I do At that moment in time. There's no secret told at the end of the cardiology fellowship like, come here, let me tell you this. This is how you separate out GI pain from cardiac pain. But don't tell those emergency docs (laughs) because then we won't have a secret way of controlling them there is none of that stuff if you feel uncomfortable with that case you feel uncomfortable with it and the truth is in most acute situations i have a lot of experience now i've seen 140,000 patients if my gut says it's not right it's not right and i want somebody coming in to help me out with
1: this and the other thing is that you have done a history and physical you've listened touch the patient, the doctor on the phone hasn't done any of those things. So his ability to make a decision regarding a disposition is without adequate data. You are the source of the data. You say, I think based on this data, they should stay. And you give them the same data. He says, no, I think based on that data, they should go. By the way, Rick raises an interesting question. When you're passing on data to a doc
2: to help them make decision, you always, if you want the patient admitted, pass on an admitting story. (laughs) The patient had... Profound diaphoresis. Now, to me, that's one drop of sweat. And I don't care if it's on the patient or on me. (laughs) If I have the drop of sweat or the patient has a drop of sweat, that's profound diaphoresis. By the way, don't spend time going through all the equivocal stuff. Give those things which would push you in a direction because that's where you want to go with the discussion. I don't care what his toilet training was like at the age of two. I want to know now that he's 48 His father died of an MI. He's had pain
0: radiate to his jaws. You know what? I don't want to debate that for very long. So I've got a letter here from one of our listeners, and they've asked a very interesting and very specific question. They work at a private emergency department. There's a lot of patients who are coming in sent in by their private doctors, and he was seeing this patient, and the patient was very sick. In comes the private doctor and says, I'm just going to send this person home now, I'm done, they don't have what you said, emergency physician, this chest pain is non-cardiac and I'm sending them home and I'm the cardiologist. What this physician wants to know is at what point can he give up care to a private doctor, a cardiologist, an ob whoever it is, in the emergency department? Just because they say, I want to send the patient home, is that okay? What's their role there at that point? The story of the private doctor in the emergency
2: department is actually becoming less and less of a problem in the country because less and less of them are showing up. Rick and I are from the era when there was still a little of that when they were coming in. But these days when someone says, my doctor is going to meet me, that's usually one of the great lies in America. Uh, That's like the check. Don't go through that list. Yeah, 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 the check is in the mail. (laughs) But I think that as we look at these kinds of situations, they can take place. If the two doctors do not agree, here is my suggestion. You've got to make sure that the patient got your opinion. If the patient is happy with his doctor taking over, I am transferring care now to your doctor. Are you happy with this? If he knows what your thoughts are, that's fine. But I think the two of you need to go in the back room and talk this thing out. Because if you're viewing the case differently, the patient has a right to your best opinion. Let me give you the case. This is a case that goes back a number of years, but it goes back to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. This is the Bethup case, Johnson slash Bethup. And it had to do with a man who's in an emergency department and the emergency doc looks at the first EKG and says that's an anterior infarct. Calls the private doctor. Private doctor says, well, why don't you transfer him to the hospital across town? They have house staff and I think they get better care. Which translates to the house staff does the work and I get the charge for it. The emergency doc said, I don't feel comfortable with that. This is an acute anterior. Things could happen. And it's a forty minute ride. The doctor comes in, he and the emergency doc have words in the back about this. He said, Well, it's my patient. So he goes in, talks to the patient, transfers him, and of course in the act of transfer he dies. This is a real simple course. Obviously something bad had to happen and there wouldn't be a lawsuit. The wife sues the primary attending who came in. No problem with that. But she also includes the emergency physician. And here's the theory under law that was initially thrown out and then went all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The theory under law was, I paid you for four things. Number one, history and physical. You did that great, Doc. Thank you very much. Diagnosis. You're an ace. You nailed it. You knew exactly what he had. Initial therapy, not bad. You did what you were supposed to do. And I sued you for your best medical opinion. I had retained you for your best medical judgment. If I had known that you and my primary care doctor had disagreed, I might have made another decision other than to let you transfer my
0: husband. So, Greg, the obvious follow-up to that is simpler, but it has to be stated the private physician on the phone says, Dr. Henry, send this patient home. You think that's a bad idea. And he says, send the patient home. I'm the private doctor.
2: Well, I think that, first of all, we have to challenge the initial premise, and that is that I'm the doctor. I own the patient. That's exactly what doesn't exist. Under the law, patients patients retain doctors. Doctors don't own patients. And that is a key principle of the law. Patients can change their doctor anytime they want. You and I all know patients who change their doctors more often than they change their socks and underwear. And one week it's one doctor and one week it's another. When they're in your department, you are the person who is signing that chart. You bear the responsibility at that moment in time. If you don't agree with what's going on, then you ought to state that to the doctor at this moment, and I never advocate being rude about it. But what you can say is, you know, I'm not sure we're understanding this case. Here are the things I'm afraid of. And again, I've become a master at convincing them to keep patients. I can say, you're right. I'll just watch them throughout the night and call you every hour with the vital signs. Just because the guy on the phone doesn't want the case doesn't mean you have to send them home. You can find them another doctor. You can keep them and watch them. You can do a lot of things. Sometimes you have to ask a little favor and say, Doc, I know we disagree with this a little bit, but trust me on this one. I feel uncomfortable enough that I want to do X or Y. Don't put me in that position. The other thing is, why don't you come in and see the case with me and see what you want to do. And 99% of the time these days, if you say that, you know what they say? admit them because they don't want to get out of bed, come in and see that case. But no doctor, no emergency doctor should ever believe that by talking to someone on the phone, it relieves them of responsibility. They're the person on site. And you know what all those guys say when something goes wrong? If they'd only told me, if they'd only conveyed how sick that person was, well, I wanted to come in. I was driving by the hospital dressed on my cell phone. (laughs) I would have been in
1: there in a heartbeat. On a
2: heartbeat, I'd have been there if the doctor had only done it. You know what? In retrospect, everybody's got this figured out. But the only person who's bearing the liability at that moment, the only one who's got the clear view because they're seeing them, is the emergency doc. There's no question in my mind that most of the cardiologists i speak to know a lot more about what the anterior descending artery looks like in the loa position on a calf than i do but they don't know anything more about chest pain and whether it's an actual mi than i do at that moment in time there's no secret told at the end of the cardiology fellowship like come here let me tell you this this is how you separate out gi pain from cardiac pain but don't tell those emergency docs because then we won't have a secret way of controlling them there is none of that stuff if you feel uncomfortable with that case you feel uncomfortable with it and the truth is in most acute situations i have a lot of experience now i've seen 140,000 patients if my gut says it's not right it's not right and i want somebody coming in to help me out with this
1: And the other thing is that you have done history and physical. You've listened, touched the patient. The doctor on the phone hasn't done any of those things. So his ability to make a decision regarding a disposition is without adequate data. You are the source of the data. You say, I think based on this data, they should stay. And you give them the same data. He says, no, I think based on that data, they should go. By the way, Rick raises an interesting question. When you're passing on data to a doc to
2: help them make decision, you always, if you want the patient admitted, Pass on an admitting story. The patient had profound diaphoresis. Now, to me, that's one drop of sweat. And I don't care if it's on the patient or on me. If I have the drop of sweat or the patient has a drop of sweat, that's profound diaphoresis. By the way, don't spend time going through all the equivocal stuff. Give those things which would push you in a direction because that's where you want to go with the discussion. I don't care what his toilet training was like at the age of two. I want to know now that he's 48. His father died of an MI. He's had pain radiate to his jaws. You know what? I don't want to debate that for very long.
0: So the take-home points as I see it for this month's CD is it doesn't matter what you think about the encounter. It's what the patient thinks about the encounter. And because of that, this leads to a number of different things. And first of all you have to be clear, you will be judged by how you look. Whether you like it or not, you'll be judged by your look and you have 15 seconds to make a first impression and as Rick said, you only have one chance to make that first impression so do a good job of it. Rick also suggested that as a director from his perspective and it's certainly true from patient's perspective, it's the time to seeing the physician that really matters in many of these encounters. So whatever you can do to get the patient back and to be seen by a physician is very, very important. We then talked about, and I like this part, give me some concrete things that I can do when I first see that patient that is going to reduce the tension, make them like me, and so therefore less likely for this to go on. If something bad did happen, less likely for them to name me in a suit. And we suggested that you should identify yourself. Hi, I am Dr. Herbert. You should identify the patient. This is very important. You should do some magic, and the magic could be shaking of hands, or touching the person, to break that tension, to break that bond. Most patients will like this. Obviously, there are scenarios where that may not be appropriate, but the laying on of hands is incredibly important. Give them something that they can really take home. Thank them for coming. Ask them how you can help them, and don't Reiterate what they've told 12 people, but I understand you're here for chest pain, let's talk about it. And apologize, this is another pearl. Apologize for the wait and do it every time, whether they've waited for 12 hours, whether they've waited for five minutes. These are real concrete things that you can say and do to make that initial interaction as positive as possible. You also need to be aware that you are on stage, and this is another thing that I've taken away from this month's CD, that all the world's a stage and it's no more a stage than when you're in the emergency department. So be vigilant about what you say, about what you wear, about the milieu of the emergency department because the patients are listening and the patients are watching. One of the other things we suggested that you could do that's very simple, that's very easy, is to assess the patient's pain and offer something for their pain as soon as you can. Preemptive pain management and assessment is a big deal. We then talked about private MDs. And remember, do not put yourself down. You saw the patient, you did the history, you did the physical, and you will be sued if bad things happen. Whether the other physician comes in or whether they tell you over the phone to send them home, do not expect that you'll be dropped from the lawsuit just because the private physician was somehow involved in that care. And as Greg said, The patient is retaining you as a physician. You're not retaining the patient. And that's an important mindset change over what many of us think. So, therefore, you are obligated in this scenario to tell the patient what you think. And there are different ways you can do that, but you are obligated to tell the patient, in your opinion, what you think should be going on. So, these are all the important points as I saw them. Greg, did you want to add anything to that? Just that the concept of The fact that we are under law the
2: retained agent and servant of the patient best exemplifies the relationship. We are worthy to serve the sick, but
0: the patient is ultimately in charge. Well, let's quickly finish off. We don't have much time on this CD with this month's Wine of the Month. Well, there's been such
2: overwhelming response to this that we're going to keep up the trend, which has to do with Great value for low money. I'm going to bring out a name now which is going to cause giggles and laughs and I'm sure titters in certain of the wine aficionados, and that is going back to the Gallo family vineyards. The Gallo. Ga- Gallo, we all understand, is one of the largest producers of jug wines in the world. By the way, they're probably the best jug wines in the world. When you're in France, of course, you can drink the very great French wines, but the average Frenchman drinks a Vin Rouge Ordinaire, and believe me, it's Tres Ordinaire, something called Algerian Rouge, and it is very harsh stuff. The jug wines we can buy in this country are terrific. Now, Gallo has multiple levels, and I'm just going to pass out one wine today, and that is the Pinot Noir, which is Gallo, Sonoma, and it is between 15 and $18 a bottle. Don't take my word for it here. The wine connoisseur Robert Parker one of the best experts in wine in the world says it's one of the best bargains in the world he rates it an 89 out of 100 points and this is for a bottle of wine produced by Gallo which is available for between 12 and 15 bucks a bottle it's the right price the right flavor hey this
0: is a winner And if you need the references for these wines, they're in the written segment that comes with Mel's management monthly, whatever this thing's called. (laughs) Uh, My caffeinated beverage of the month is Diet Coke. The caffeine content is 30 milligrams of caffeine. That's about one-fifth the average cup of coffee.
1: I have nothing to add. I don't have the beer of the month. We stopped that, I guess. So I don't really have much to contribute here. So for Mel and Rick,
2: this is Greg saying goodbye till the next issue of... Emergency Medicine Risk
3: Management Monthly. That's what it's called. That's called. Cool. See you guys. That's all for now. Bye.